we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, He kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us His righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Our Jesus is magnificent. He is wonderful. He is beautiful. He is not a product of our imagination He is not a creation of history. He is the real and risen Savior of the world. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the God who laid down his life for sinners and who rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. He is the God who has promised to return and make everything sad untrue. He is our King and our God. He is the reason we have gathered together this morning, and he still works wonders today. That's the the main idea I want you to get from our text here in Acts chapter 9, verses 31 through 43, is that Jesus still works wonders, and he works wonders in and through his church. I'm going to exhort you this morning, and in a phrase it this way, uh, the phrasing of my exhortation has been influenced by uh, that theologian Darth Vader. I don't know if you know him or not. Uh, he, he, if you remember in the movies, he says, you know, let the hate flow through you, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's the emperor that says that. I don't remember. They say, let the hate flow through you. It's the emperor. But what we want to do, what I want to exhort you to do, is to let the grace flow through you. Let the grace that you have received from God flow through you to others. That's going to be our exhortation. We're going to work through the text in two parts since there are two stories here. First is that of Aeneas or Aeneas. I'll probably say it both ways. Same guy. And the story of that of Dorcas, who also goes by Tabitha and wouldn't you. (laughs) That in mind, let's pray and get started. Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Clear our minds. Help us to focus on you and your word. We confess that we are great sinners and we need Jesus, our great Savior. We need him just as much today as we did the first day we met him. Thank you that your mercies are new that your love never fails or falters. God, make our greatest fear be the cooling of our affections for Christ.
revive our spirits again this morning or this week. Let us feel the presence of your spirit here among us, in us. We thank you that you have made us a family and called us your church. We thank you for the privilege of calling you Father. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So where, how did we get to Acts chapter 9? And, it, and that's by going through the first eight chapters of Acts. And so as we typically do, we're going to situate ourselves here a little bit so we can get our bearings. The book of Acts, we've said, can be summarized as Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. By the time this is done, you are all going to be able to answer that question. What is Acts about? And you say, well, we can actually summarize it this way, right? Jesus goes up. The Spirit comes down and the church goes out. Chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus is teaching his disciples all about the kingdom of God and about how he is going to build his church. Then he ascends to his throne at the end of chapter 1 in heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Spirit. He pours out his Holy Spirit. All the disciples in Jerusalem, probably around 120-ish disciples, begin speaking in languages that they never studied or learned. And everybody in Jerusalem that's from all these other areas, because there's a festival going on, the festival of Pentecost, they're like, why are we hearing these Galilean disciples, these weird, you know, kind of hicks from the sticks, speaking in our languages perfectly? You know, they must be drunk. And Peter's just like, no, 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 uh, I know it's five o'clock somewhere, but it's nine o'clock here. They, like, we haven't had our coffee and our lucky charms yet. They're not drunk, they're being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This was prophesied by Amos. And then he he argues uh, by Amos and through the Psalms that Jesus Christ is the Messiah they've been waiting on, that he is both Lord and Messiah. And people within earshot, all of a sudden, they're they're believing this. And they go, oh my gosh, Peter, we, we are guilty. We are sinners. What should we do in response? And Peter says, repent, turn from your sins, and be baptized as an expression of the work that God has done in you to give you the gift of faith. And so the church is born in some ways right then and there. It's a group of disciples becomes the spirit-filled church. And then from that moment forward, the church continues kind of spreading out. But for the most part on the front end here, we're in Jerusalem. They're filling Jerusalem with their witness. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, Jesus told them they would do just that. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they're, they're bearing witness. People are being healed. And then persecution starts. And it's, just, it's not bad at first. They're getting brought up on trumped up charges and then, you know, little slaps on the wrists and night in prison. It's not, not too bad, but then uh, it increases to the extent that Stephen is killed at the end of chapter 7. We find that uh, despite all these things that have happened, the, per- the church is persecuted and yet it continues to prevail. And that takes us into Acts chapter 8, where this persecution, this martyrdom of Stephen, leads to the ravaging of the church by Saul. He's knocking on people's doors. Any Christians here? He's dragging them off to prison, separating families. It's, it's getting quite bad. And so what ends up happening is the church ends up scattered outside of Jerusalem. The church is scattered, but it keeps speaking, speaking about Christ. And all of a sudden, those words of Jesus and verse 8 of chapter 1 come back to our minds. Wait a minute. They're bearing witness to who Jesus is, not only in Jerusalem, but now they're in Judea and Samaria. And then uh, when we see Philip come across the path of an Ethiopian or African eunuch, 
Africa was considered the very fringes of the world by the Romans. We see that it's going even to the ends of the earth. And it's going to continue to do that through the rest of the book of Acts. It's almost as if Jerusalem is leaking. It's like a bucket full of water leaking, and that water is going to just cover the whole globe. People are bearing witness. And Luke only, Luke only highlights some of that for us. He doesn't even highlight all the areas where the gospel is gone. Like he just drops bombs on us, like when Paul is going to Damascus to persecute Christians. You're like, wait, the gospel's in Damascus? How did it get there? Well, through the witness of ordinary Christians not just the apostles, but the gospel is exploding, it's prevailing, the good news is creating wonderful change. The church is growing. We see after Paul's conversion that he is a new man, he's spreading the gospel, he goes back to Jerusalem, people are seeking to kill him, and that brings us almost to where we're at today. Some of this summary verse, Acts has a bunch of these summary verses, we've seen them, in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. God has given peace to the church. And the summary verse also is going to serve as a verse of transition. It's transitioning us into the next section of Acts and probably the most shocking section of Acts to this point. And our text today is kind of It's like scene one of what will be like a five-scene act that happens throughout chapter 10. It's reintroducing us to Peter and reminding us of his significance as an apostle and as a disciple of Christ. And the reason we're going to be reintroduced to Peter and reminded of how important he is is to legitimize what's about to happen in chapter 10. See, what's about to happen in chapter 10 is the wow moment of Acts. It's that moment that no one can really believe. And here's here's what it is. Is that non-Jews can be sons of Abraham by faith. It's this truth that the sons of Abraham are not those who are physically descended from him, but those who are spiritually descended from him. Those who have faith are Abraham's sons, as Paul says in Galatians 3. That's what's about to happen in chapter 10. Peter is going to go to Cornelius, and we're going to find out that the Gentiles are included in God's plan to redeem the world, and always have been. It's such an incredible movement, something so shocking that we need to be reminded of how important Peter is. We need to be reminded of Peter's significance as an apostle. And so that's what we're reminded of this morning. And I have to be honest with you. I I was tempted to skip these two stories uh, and just go into chapter 10 or to just kind of do them as scene one, scene two, and just have a real big sermon on the whole thing. Um, And maybe to my shame, the the reason I think I thought like that is because I went, you know, hey, we're an axe, more miracles, we get it, right? And I thought, that's a really lame approach, (laughs) Uh, I, I need to be excited about what God has, has done. I mean, he, he's going, we're going to see a paralytic healed. and see a woman raised from the dead. This is incredible. It became apparent to me that I, I need to think freshly on everything that God does and can do and still does. I need to remember and focus on Think about how Jesus still works wonders. You should be excited about that. 
And so my hope is, is that you will think freshly this morning on all those wonderful things that God has done in your life, around you, in the church throughout history, and even in the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Dorcas. Let's look at the healing of Aeneas. Verse 32. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. So Peter is kind of on a traveling tour. He's encouraging the churches. And he finds himself in Lydda, and he comes across a man named Aeneas who is paralyzed. He's been in his bed for eight years. That had me curious. I wonder at what point Aeneas became a Christian, if it was before his paralysis or after. I'm not sure, but either way, he is still believing in God. He's believing that wonderful truth that unites him to Jesus, that makes Jesus' righteousness his righteousness, that gives him forgiveness and right standing with God. He's believing that. He's looking forward to the future where he'll have a new body and everything will be made right. But his immediate circumstance, it's not changed. He's been in bed for eight years, suffering. And this picks up a little bit on a, a thread from last week when we said suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure or unlove of you. But God loves Aeneas, loves him. Aeneas belongs to God, even in his paralysis. So even in your hardest of circumstances, even in the midst of your greatest of suffering, you can know I belong to God, not because I'm good or because I have some kind of um, greatness about me, but because I belong to God. Because he, he chose me and said, I'm going to love him. I'm going to love her. He loves me because I'm in Christ. And nothing can ever change that. God loves Aeneas, and yet Aeneas has suffered for eight years. And we can kind of see how Peter, <laughs> Peter comes across him, right? Imagine that someone had to take care of Aeneas. Being paralyzed and being bedridden means that, that someone has to come and turn you on your bed because you can't turn yourself. Someone had to come and change Aeneas's linens because he couldn't change them himself. Someone has to come and fluff Aeneas's pillow because he can't do it himself. Someone has to care for Aeneas because he can't care for himself. And we don't have to speculate too much to go, you know who's probably caring for him? Maybe it's family, but I would contend definitely the church. Definitely believe that the saints that he is found among in Lydda are caring for his needs. That's what it means to be the church. It's looking for opportunities in one another's lives to serve each other, care for one another, to express the kindness of God to one another. So you can imagine Peter, he's visiting Lydda, He's just encouraging people, preaching the gospel. He's in conversation. He said, well, you know, who really could use some encouragement around here? And somebody says, well, you know, Aeneas has been, you know, he's been bedridden for eight years. Do you have a word for him, Peter? You know, maybe just go pray with him a little bit. And all of a sudden, you, you know, Peter finds himself or finds Aeneas. And they are face to face. And Peter says to him, verse 34, Aeneas, 
Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up and refused to make his bed. No, 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 that's, that's, that's me. I just, I love the command to make your bed at the end there. I never, I've never been a bed maker. Like sometimes I get up in the morning and Chelsea's bedside's already made and I'm like, why? You're just getting back in it. I don't understand. The, this command though isn't just like make your bed. This is do something that you could never have done for yourself. You're healed. Get up. Make your bed because you don't need to lay in it anymore. You are well, and it's Jesus Christ who's making you well. Peter doesn't want us to get confused here. He doesn't want us to think, man, Peter, you're so awesome. So powerful, Peter, doing all this crazy healing stuff. No, Peter wants us to see Jesus. He wants Aeneas to recognize that the Jesus he believes in, that the Jesus that church at Lydda worships, is the same Jesus who's healing him. It was a Jesus who was crucified, yes, but the Jesus who is alive and ruling and reigning from heaven. It's that Jesus. It's his power that makes Aeneas well, causes Aeneas to get up. And Peter's healing and his words remind us of Jesus, uh, especially because it brings to mind uh, when Jesus did a very similar thing in John chapter 5. I'm just going to read the account to you really quick. Starting verse 1 of chapter 5. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethsaida in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk home. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. And so we can see how Peter is showing us that Jesus has not um, retired from healing people. Jesus has, has not kind of hung it up. He's not dead and gone. Jesus is still very alive and very active. Jesus is still in the healing business. Jesus is still the wonder-working God. And now he's working his wonders through the apostle Peter. Jesus is the point of this miracle. And I do have to look at Peter and go, man, he provides a wonderful example for us. So what, what he does is he, he goes to Lydda and he identifies a need. He identifies brokenness. And because it's within his power to address that brokenness, does this crazy thing. He addresses it. This, this guy is, is paralyzed for eight years. Jesus has given me the ability to heal. I'm going to heal him. And what a wonderful example for us as a church, should we not be about the business of identifying one another's needs? Identifying brokenness in our midst and then working together to meet those needs? 
Maybe, maybe we can't heal like Peter. But perhaps, like the rest of the church around Aeneas, we could turn him on his bed or change his linens. I actually think those might be more miraculous. How are we at identifying needs and meeting them? Let me give you an illustration of what this might look like. It's entirely hypothetical so that no one looks around like, who is he talking about? Uh, For instance, let's say that uh, we uh, had a single mother in our midst and she was struggling to care for her children and and pay her bills. What that would mean for us is to recognize that there's a need there and say, hey, sister, let me help you. It might mean babysitting. It might mean helping her find affordable child care for those of you that have no intention on babysitting, right? Not doing it. Uh, it might help uh, helping her find some good, affordable childcare. It might mean helping her find a job or teaching her how to uh, more wisely uh, create a budget. These are very practical things, practical ways that we would want to love one another. We want to identify a need and then do whatever is within our ability to help meet that need. We want to let the grace that God has given to us flow through us to others. Yes, we want to declare the gospel. That's first and foremost. Always will be. But we also want to demonstrate the gospel in our lives and in our care for one another and for those around us. We want to love God and love our neighbors. We do good works not not because they make us feel good, not because they will ever lead to the conversion of someone else, but because they make Jesus look good. Miracles don't save anyone. The gospel does. Good works always serve the message of the good news. The miracles in Scripture always serve the message about Jesus. And so likewise, we, we want to live beautiful lives in order to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Our our gospel declaration and our gospel demonstration should be married together in an effort to make much of Jesus. Our, Our good works or our righteous living is like prongs, on a wedding ring. They're there to make Jesus look good. He's the, the diamond. You give somebody, give somebody an engagement ring, or, or a, I guess it's, a di- it's not a diamond ring without a diamond, but, but a ring that's supposed to have a diamond there without the diamond. Pretty worthless, right? Likewise, our good deeds are worthless if they are divorced from the message of Christ crucified for sin. We want to marry these things together. We want to be people that declare the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. And this is what Peter is doing. He identifies a need and he, he meets it. The grace of God, the grace that he's received flows through him to someone in need. And the result, verse 35, so all who lived in Lydda and Sharon, Sharon is like the county, so it would be like all who lived in Nellie's Ford inside of Nelson County, saw him and turned to the Lord. All here is, again, that kind of generic use of all, like when we say, the whole world was watching the Super Bowl. Well, we know, like, there's some loser out there somewhere not watching the Super Bowl. I'm kidding. 
Some people don't watch it. My wife doesn't. Um, but you know, that's what he's saying. It's a great number of people are turning to the Lord. They're seeing the gospel, walking on the feet of Aeneas, and they are turning from their sin, and they're believing in Jesus Christ as their Lord. They're turning to the Lord. And that's, that's I mean, my prayer is that we would be a church that declared the gospel and demonstrated the gospel in such a way that people would look at us, look at our lives, hear the message of Christ crucified, turn from their sin and trust the Lord. Now, that's my prayer if you're not a Christian, that you would see the truth of Jesus Christ crucified for, not for, for your sin, crucified for your sin, raised for your justification. They would see that truth and that you would come to him in faith. They see and they turn because the grace of God flows through Peter. The grace of God flows through the people of God. Let the grace of God flow through you to others. Peter doesn't stop there, though. He takes a diversion, change in his travel plans. He ends up going to Joppa. Let's, let's look at verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Now, I don't want to do a whole etymology on the word dork and why this name doesn't work in our society. Uh, you don't hear a whole lot of Dorcases anymore. It used to be like uh, Ruth Ministry and Dorcas Ministries, and all of a sudden, at some point, the Dorcas Ministries just disappeared, and everybody did like Ruth Women's Ministry. I don't know why that happened. But, but the name is actually really cool uh, in... <clears throat> In Aramaic, it can mean gazelle or deer. And typically, like, not typically, in the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, uh, gazelle is a metaphor for beloved. And I think this is an apt description of Dorcas, Tabitha, that she is beloved. She's beloved. Look how she's described. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. What an epithet. Like, this is the one sentence that describes her. Always doing good works and acts of charity. What, what one sentence would define you? Don't want to miss the example of Dorcas here. She's committed to doing good works and acts of charity. Someone that's letting the grace of God flow through her to others. We want to be like that. We don't want to be kind of cul-de-sacs of mercy. Like, we just receive God's grace and then it stays there, right? We don't want to be cul-de-sacs. We want to be conduits. We want to be conduits through which the grace of God flows to one another and to our neighbors. Dorcas is always doing good works and acts of charity. What one sentence will define your life? Is it something awesome like that? Or would somebody maybe describe you as always complaining and doing things for himself, for herself? What one sentence would you like to define you? Dorcas being beloved and doing good works and acts of charity does not prevent her from becoming sick. Verse 37 
About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. I just want to see how this whole thing went down. So like Dorcas dies, and then I imagine it in my head, like one guy says to another, hey, let's not do the whole funeral thing. Let's not make funeral plans. Instead, let's make plans for a resurrection. Like, what? What are you talking about? We'll, we'll wash her body. We'll put it in the attic. You know, if things don't work out, we'll just have some skeletons in our closet. No big deal. But I heard, I heard that Peter is not that far away in Lydda, and he's doing, he's doing some real Jesus-y type stuff. Like, he's healing people. Another person's like, I'm still not really convinced on your plan. No, no, for real. Like, you remember Jesus. He, he raised people from the dead, just like Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son from the dead in 2 Kings chapter 4. Or, or when, when Jesus did it, he, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised that widow's son from the dead, and he, he was already on the, 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 the pallbearers were out, the casket was open, and Jesus just walked up and told him to come to life, and he did. Or what about Lazarus? Lazarus was dead for four days, and Jesus rose him from the dead. And then Jesus, Jesus rose himself from the dead. He's still alive. Like, Peter was pretty close to Jesus. Maybe, maybe Peter can bring Dorcas back to life. And like the other guy's like, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable idea. Let's do this. At any rate, they, I just love how big their faith is. I, I, I want to believe like that. I want to have really, really big faith that God can do anything, that Jesus is still working wonders in and through his church. I've got to confess to you, though. My faith is very seldom that big. The good news is, I'm not saved according to the size of my faith, but according to the size of my Savior. And we've said this many times. It's not the amount of your faith that makes you right with God. It is the object of your faith. And I've used this illustration way too many times, but I'll use it again. If I have all the faith in the world that I can fly, and I jump off the roof of my house, and I flap my little arms, and I believe I can fly... I'm not going to be able to do it because me, the object of my faith, is not able to deliver. Likewise, if I have zero faith, zero confidence in the ability of an airplane to fly me from Virginia to California, no faith, but somehow I get myself on the airplane, and assuming there's nothing wrong with the plane, right, mechanically, we get up in the air, and guess what? We're going to land in California. Even though I had zero faith, because the object of my faith, the airplane, is able to deliver. See the point here? Jesus saves us, not because we have great faith, but because he is great. He's the one that delivers us. We're not, we're not, listen, yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, amen. But sometimes I think we get this twisted. We think that it's our faith that does the saving of us, right? It's not. Your faith doesn't save you. Jesus does. It's your faith in Jesus that saves you. He's the one that delivers us. And so, if you have small faith like I do sometimes, be encouraged. Jesus is big. 
and pray that he would grow your faith to match his bigness. I love their faith here. They're going, we're going to get Peter, and she's going to get up again. Verse 39, <clears throat> Peter got up and went with them. This is also remarkable. <clears throat> Peter is, has no plans to go to Joppa. Right? He's, he's been on tour, he's been out preaching, he's been meeting with people, he's ready to go home, back to Jerusalem, relax a little bit. And so when they come to him and say, Peter, please come with us to Joppa, uh, he doesn't say, look, I had a really long week, it's hard being this awesome. Uh, let me pray about it for three or four days. It's like, that's the Christian way to say no. I'm going to pray about it a little bit. I'll get back to you, send an email or something. But no, I'm busy. i got plans. I don't have time for this interruption. He doesn't say that. See, he, he understands that interruptions are opportunities for ministry. Interruptions are opportunities to show other people the grace and mercy and beauty of God. Interruptions are opportunities to share and spread the gospel through both declaration and demonstration. And what that means is uh, when you're doing something as a parent and your kids interrupt you, you have an opportunity, right? Or when somebody, uh, you've got your, your favorite show on or your favorite book, you're cuddled up, you're, you, and somebody calls you on the phone and they ask you for a favor, that instead of kind of recoiling and going, how am I getting out of this? I don't want to deal with this right now. That you go, no, this, this, this is an opportunity for me to love them like Jesus loves me. Peter sees not an interruption, but an opportunity to minister. And so he goes with them. When he arrived, they led him to a room upstairs. And all the windows, windows, all the widows, I promised I wasn't going to do that. I don't know why. <clears throat> all the widows approached him. It'd be interesting if windows approached him weeping Widows approached him weeping. It'd be a great metaphor. Gotta, gotta get past this. Uh, widows approached him weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. And so Peter walks into a really desperate situation. There are all these widows that Dorcas has apparently served with her good works, and they're like waving, in my mind, like waving the clothes and the robes that that she made for them. She's like, see what Dorcas made me? And this other person has like a half-made one. You've really got to raise her so she can finish this. Right? But like, she's awesome. Look at all this great stuff she's done. They're, they're showing in pictures of them on Facebook. Like, this is me and Dorcas here at the mall. Like, they love this woman. They love her. It's a sign of Christian maturity and faithfulness that when you are dead and gone. People have affection for you. Stories to tell about you. I have stories about many of you. Some of them I've written down. Some not. I'll take that. I'll share. I wasn't going to. I'm debating. But I, can th I can't walk through my house without seeing uh, the work of Herschel and Darlene Spears. Got gates. I got Herschel put that up. Locks. Herschel put that up. You know, this and that. Uh, Jenny Hicks often brings me groceries and babysits for us. One time I backed into the well over here. I think I've told you. I don't know how I did it. Uh, 
it was a miracle that I backed into it. Uh, but David came right away and just smiled at me like, you idiot. And didn't, he didn't say that with his words. And joked about putting caution cones around it for me so I wouldn't make that mistake again. You can think of uh, Sarah LaFleur making me pretzel with some homemade honey mustard. It was excellent. I don't know how long ago that was, but I always tell Chelsea, oh, it was awesome. Or Glenn one time randomly on a Sunday brought me chicken wings. It's knocked on my door. I was in like sweatpants, rubbing my eyes. It's like, hey, I brought you some chicken wings. I'm like, you are an angel from heaven. This is glorious. <laughs> think of Judy always gives me candy, which probably isn't good for me, but I take it. Candy and cards. My kids love that. Think of Henry, who is here every week and listens to me preach. He comes every week and encourages me. He comes every week, turns on the lights in the church, sweeps off the front porch, sometimes visits his wife's grave, but he's here and he sits in here for 40, 45 minutes praying for you and praying for me and reading his Bible. Unseen work. I think of Linda and Malcolm Dodd when Chelsea broke her foot a few years ago, bringing us a, a wheelchair so she could kind of wheel around the kitchen. There are many, many more stories. My point here is, is that people should have stories to tell about you when you're gone, about how you served the people of God. Don't underestimate the impact that you can have on others. The smallest of good works makes a great difference. No good work goes unnoticed by God. So make it a point to encourage one another, to let the grace of God flow through you to your brothers and sisters in Christ and to your neighbors. Will people have stories to tell about you? They're telling stories to Peter of Dorcas. Verse 40, Peter sends them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed. Just really quickly, obvious application here. Pray before you act. Praying is, is so important. And again, shows Peter's dependence on Christ to perform this miracle. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. And this became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Our Jesus is amazing. Raising Dorcas from the dead was easier for him than it is for you to wake up your spouse in the morning. This is that simple for him. That's how powerful he is. And what a great... What a great picture of our own salvation. Dead, without hope, nothing to offer. And brought to life by the voice of Jesus. Get up. Believe in me. Brought to our feet by the hand of Jesus and his strength and his power. I don't, I don't know that we meditate on this enough. That the smallest of our sins, even the smallest of them, earns for us an eternity under God's wrath. 
You know, that doesn't seem exactly fair, and I think that's just because we have such a small view of who God is. It's fair. It's just. He's that glorious. He's that good. We all have earned sin. We've all earned death. We've all earned an eternity under his judgment. And instead of giving to us that which we've earned, he came to us. God became a man, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, and rose from the dead so that when we put our faith in him, we can have peace with him. That we can have heaven instead of the hell we deserve. That we can be raised to walk in the newness of life now with the certain hope of a future resurrection then. This is good news. That Jesus saves us from the curse we deserve by taking it for us. He takes the curse and gives us his blessing. That's good news. All we have to do is receive it with the empty hands of faith. All we have to do is believe in him as our perfect sin-atoning sacrifice, as our great high priest who intercedes for us and brings us into relationship with God. All we have to do is bend our knee to him as our king. And the crazy part about it is he's not like a distant king. He's also, he also is our brother. He loves us. This is really good news. And, and Dorcas's resurrection is good news. But Dorcas died again, right? Just like all these other people I mentioned that were resurrected. So I want you to, to recognize that as miraculous as a resurrection is, she still died again. And she still, even after she had been raised from the dead once, would have had to live as we live now, with our eyes set on the future. When Jesus rights every wrong, makes everything sad untrue, gives us new bodies that will never die. Look forward to that resurrection that's full, final, and forever. We want that good news that that's our future to animate our whole lives. We want to be a people that declares that good news of Jesus crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. We want to declare that faithfully, and we want to demonstrate it in our love and our kindness to others. Church, let the grace flow through you because Jesus still works wonders. He is the wonder-working God, and our lives should be lived so that everyone around us can see that. We want our words and our deeds to be married to the end of magnifying Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, you are our great salvation. You are our hope and stay, our strength and song, and we ask that the melody of the gospel would ring in our hearts and in our minds throughout this week. Pray that the name of Jesus would be on our lips and the kindness and love of Jesus would be in our hands and our feet. Help us to be a church committed to helping everyone to see just how beautiful Jesus is, just how great a God you are. Let us be a people committed to worshiping you with every breath we take. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.